You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. All right, welcome back to Experiencing Data. I have uh, Cole Naflik on the line today. I think probably some of our listeners already know this name, but you run Storytelling with Data. That's right. <laughs> Hi, Brian. How's it going? It's going great. Cool. I'm, I'm excited to chat with you. I know you have a new text, uh, a new book that came out recently. Uh, yes. I have your, your first text. And uh, I thought it'd be fun to like nerd out to some visualization stuff since like so much of you know this podcast we we tend to talk up a couple elevations above data viz in terms of design and and customer experience and making sure we're we're designing around human beings but down in the weeds where <laughs> you know the ink hits the eyeballs is where uh, a lot of stuff can fail and so I, I I thought it was time to to have a conversation with someone who knows a lot about this. So I'm super happy to have you on Experiencing Data. <laughs> awesome. I'm excited to be here. And yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So uh, tell tell our audience a little bit, who the, for those that don't know, like tell us about your journey and how did you get to be where you are now? Sure thing. So I'll start with today. So I uh, run Storytelling with Data. We help people and organizations make graphs that make sense and weave them into what we hope are compelling and action-inspiring stories. So we do that mainly through workshops where we'll go into an organization, spend half a day or a day teaching and talking about the foundations of effective data visualization on the one hand, but then also more generally communicating and and weaving data into a story to try to get someone to understand something new or drive change. My path in getting here uh, has touched a lot of different sort of analytical roles over time. Uh, I started off in the banking industry, working credit risk management, uh, you know, doing all the hardcore statistical um, building models and such, and then spent a good chunk of time at Google uh, on the people analytics side of things there. And I've always really enjoyed that space where numbers and business intersect and enjoy how we can use numbers to get to understand things better and make smarter decisions. And being able to visualize data is a way to make it more accessible and hopefully drive better understanding and decisions. Nice. What's it like jumping to, I, I think a lot of people still think that, you know, what you're doing now is this creative thing and it's, it's like, oh, that's a, that's a talent. That's a, that's far away from, you know, the, the analytics and the math part and all of this. And as, as I imagine, you probably will agree with me there. I think there's plenty that we can all learn if we decide that it's yes. important enough to learn it. T talk to me a little bit about that them versus us. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't like the them versus us, right? right? Because for me, it's, it's not this fluffy, you know, I communicate it's, this is, an extension of the analytical role where, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I, 
face this all of the time, right? Where folks, particularly when they come through a highly technical background uh, and training and are in technical roles, that there can be this thought that, you know, I, I do complicated things with data and that's what I do. And, you know, my audience or whomever I deliver that to can sort of take it or leave it, uh, which for me, it, so much value gets lost through that. Because if you're the one analyzing the data, you know it best and you're actually in a unique position to be able to derive and help others derive greater value from that data. But in order to do that, you have to be able to talk to other people about it and communicate what you've done uh, to, you know, for, to technical audiences and to non-technical audiences. So I think the people who recognize that and invest in those skills, right, because communicating, you know, I consider myself a quant first and foremost. And for me, mm -hmm. communicating effectively was not something that felt natural, right? Like anything, it's a skill that takes practice and trying things out and learning. But when you can bring those pieces together, when you've got both the, the technical side, the data know-how, and you can speak about that intelligently to a variety of people, you actually can turn many more situations into successful situations mm -hmm. and, and not let the value from the data or the great work that you've done with the data get lost or not have the impact that it otherwise could. Sure, sure. And I think deep down inside, most people is like, take it or leave it. It's like, well, do you really want to like spend all this time working on something that someone isn't going to use right. or they're going to ignore right. it or they're just going to like kind of roll the eyes and look at you like, okay, I have no idea what that guy's doing, but thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I don't think most people really want to do that. So we have to acknowledge that the gap exists first and then decide we want to do something about it. Yes. Um, since you self-identify as a quant, like jump me back 10 years and it, is there something you would have, the now Cole would tell the 10 years ago Cole to, sh to perhaps short, shorten the path to get you to where you are now? Uh, interesting question. So, I mean, for me, I, I think I needed to go on the path to, to get to where I am. And there were uh -huh. all sorts of different learnings along the way. So I don't know if I'd really want to cut that short. But if I think of, you know, reframing it of what would I tell others today or you caught me on the spot here in terms <laughs> of thinking through this. Um, I think it's, you know, part of it's just learning from everything, right? And reflecting when you do something, right? When you work on a project, uh, thinking about what, what is the goal of that? And does that thing or did that thing happen as a result of the work that you did? Mm -hmm. And reflecting constantly of, you know, when, when did things lead to a success and what did you do that uh, helped with that? And when did things not work, work out quite right? And, and right. how can you learn from those things? I think this ongoing process of, it, we become too complacent, I think, a lot of times uh, in the day-to-day -day work. And so the more we can do to really be thoughtful and sort of critical with ourselves around how we're doing and where things could be better that I think it can be a great way, you know, one, to not let yourself fall into that sort of complacency, but then also to just be getting better all of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, I mean, one of the kind of prevalent themes on this show is, is that I talk about a lot is, is designing for outcomes and not just, yeah. not just creating outputs. Uh, the outputs part is, is the beginning of the end, but it's, it's not the end. It's the point at which an end can start. And then you can decide, well, is this going to end well? Or is it just going to be dropped on the floor? Like, how is someone going to receive this information and hopefully take action on it? Since, yeah. I mean, so much in the business world, right? Like, we're not doing this for posterity's sake. It's like, 
I'm helping this team inform the next decision they're going to make. Yep. And here's a bunch of data to, to back it up. So like, what if you made your job focused on, did I get them to take action? Even if the answer was no, because the data suggested like, keep course, carry on, don't change, don't turn. That's still a decision, but it was informed by my work. If you look at that as the output, as, as the outcome, and not just the, I delivered the presentation or I delivered the model or whatever the heck it is. To me, that's more fulfilling. And I, I think most people probably don't realize that that's maybe not always happening because they think the endpoint is the output. Yeah, it, it's an evolution <laughs> though, right? And I can understand sure. why people get driven by output. It's an easier thing to measure, oh, right? If yeah. I finish something, I can check it off or yep. you know, add my tally mark <laughs> versus the outcome is a, you know, a harder, uh, more ambiguous oh, yeah. thing in yep. many cases. Uh, yep. But yeah, I agree. That's, the, that's a, an important shift to make. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's go down into the weeds a little bit here about some some visualization stuff. So my general sense is that while you know I'm I'm less involved with the the tooling and tactical stuff in my my own consulting work, but what I do like is that I feel like so many of the tools uh, are informed by more design theory, and they've removed the need to start from scratch. So better defaults uh, are still are present in the tools, which is is great for everyone, right? Because you can spend more time working on what I call goal time, which mm -hmm. is really your particular problem, not tooling stuff where I just need to get this freaking font changed. Like, yeah. you know, like <laughs> get the bold text out of there, whatever the heck it may be. Are, are, do you feel that's that we've come a long ways there or there's still a ways know. to go still on that? I mean, and t again, taking the human choice out of it, but just yeah. the tooling defaults. Where do you think we are with that? I mean, I think you know the pendulum swings, and it's it's swung uh, mostly away from you know three D and crazy right. colors and those sorts of things, which I think is a good direction. Uh -huh. But but there's still there there aren't magical tools out there that make all of this stuff easy, right? Sure. When it comes to communicating effectively with data, because the tool that you really need in order to make that happen is your brain, right? Yeah. You can't take the human part out of this because mm -hmm. that's the part where things can either succeed or fail because a tool is never going to be able to, or at least not in the near term, able to you know, know your context or know the story or know where you want your audience to focus and take steps to make that happen or figure out what might not be necessary, what clutter we, can we get rid of. Mm -hmm. And those are the steps that irrespective of the tool and the starting point that a person needs to make when we're communicating for explanatory purposes. Mm -hmm. And so when you when we think about getting the the tool like there's so there's like tool defaults right which is yeah. like let's let's not like for example like axes colors and grid lines like they shouldn't be black almost generally speaking they should not be black like they yeah. should recede into the background and exactly. so it's nice if tools just default and do that do you think there's like a communication like there's an equivalent side to the non data visual parts, the data viz part. So like the presentation part, the storytelling part, are there like some defaults that people should know about or some like that, or maybe that it's that you've seen change over time where people are having a better like basic skill set where whatever the black grid line equivalent yeah. is on the storytelling yeah. side. Like I love the analogy. <laughs> I think for me, it's audience, right? It's the 
always thinking critically about who your audience is and what matters to them. Because it's actually really easy to design something for ourselves, right? For right. my project, for my data. It's a much harder thing to step out of that and try to design things first and foremost for the people on the receiving end, which is why we're doing all of this in the first place. Right. But I think when we can do that, when we can pause and think critically about our audience, who are they? You know, What do they care about? What motivates them? What keeps them up at night? What context surrounds their need for the data or whatever we're providing them. If we can be thoughtful about that, it means we can frame things in terms of what's going to work for them, right? And when it comes to everything, what's their level of technical expertise? How does that mean you're going to communicate to mm -hmm. them? Uh, what kind of graph you might choose or how you walk through the detail? The more thoughtful and I guess the more planning we can do around that part of the process, the better aligned we are to ultimately do something that's going to meet our audience's needs. And it's through doing that that we're able to then meet our own. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, it's coming back to audience always with pretty much every design decision we make when we're communicating with data. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the self-reflection thing is something you have to learn to, to keep in check and, and be always be objective, asking questions about your own choices and, yes. and, and just don't, you know, not coming in with a bunch of assumptions that, you know, how, how great is this bar chart here? Could you? Well, and <laughs> leaning on others <laughs> to get that feedback along the way, right? Because, sure. you know, if, if you make a graph, right, if I make a graph, I know exactly what it means and what everything is and how things mm -hmm. are being encoded and what somebody should take away. The challenge is nobody else lives in my head. So yeah. for, for other people, I actually have to explicitly make those connections and, you know, put words around it or do things to emphasize or de-emphasize uh, or maybe even choose a different way to depict the data for somebody else. Sure. That's where getting feedback from someone else because we lose that perspective when we get close to our work. So getting that perspective from a colleague or a friend who's much less close to the details can help us identify where things are working and where they might not be and give us pointers on where to iterate. Got it. Got it. Can you, uh, you know, so if we take that down a level to like tactically, like, well, how do I, how do I do that? I, it, typically when I'm working with a client or something like that, we, we would talk about this potentially, depending on what phase of the quote design they're in, we may run a usability test on it, or we, we may still be doing some more research and rough level design where we don't really even know where we're going yet. Yep. But a way you could do that, for example, is questions like, give me a, first of all, what's a summary of what this chart is telling you? and just open-ended question to, to let them see if they can get the story. But you can also answer questions like, you know, which category performed the most and which one did the least and about how far apart were they? And that might sound like a simple question, but depending on the, the visualization, you're, what you're doing is you're teaching yourself not to assume that that information is necessarily clear. Yep. You're being objective. And it sounds like a dumb question, but that's kind of what I usually recommend to my clients is that we need to be really objective about our assumptions about what's being communicated here and validate that. Is there a process you use to, to do like to go through that with your, with your students and, and, and that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, it can always be helpful to in a you know less structured environment where you've got a colleague where you can just say, "Hey, can you take a look at this?" Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, don't give them any context and mm -hmm. have them talk through their thought process out loud. What do they pay attention to? What questions do they have? What observations do they make? Can help you figure out generally is this working or not? And then I think depending on the scenario, what you describe can work remarkably well, where you actually give people particular questions 
to answer that you can use to help assess whether what you've created is providing for the tasks to be done that you need it to do, right? right? And so being clear about, well, what do I want to enable my audience to compare or what do I want them to do with this visual? And is it facilitating that? Because there's, there is no single right way to show data. Any data can be graphed a ton of different ways. And so when we're thinking about how we visualize our data, it really means stepping back and thinking about what sort of behavior are we trying to drive in our audience? What do we want them to see in this? And then it often means iterating through different views of the data, um, which is also a fantastic way just to get to know your data better because different views will make observations easier or less easy to see. And so you can actually get to learn your data and the nuances of it better as you allow yourself to iterate through different views. And doing so can also help you realize which one or which set of views might work to help create this sort of aha moment of understanding with your audience or with the users of your data. Mm -hmm. I thought it was funny when we first talked on the phone and, and you said, I, I don't self-identify as a designer. And, you know, when I when I look at your work and the output of what you do, I, I'm going to give you that that crown <laughs> <laughs> because I think you have all the ingredients to make a designer, whether you call yourself that or not. And I don't care about the name. I'm, I'm a big fan sure. that we're, we're, if we're all in the maker community and we're making for others, yeah. then in spirit, we're designers. And yeah, it's, that's fair. it's about our deliberate choices, right? Yes. So, um, so I, but I do want to ask you about, um, a little bit on the, on the software side of things, not, not on the tooling side, mm -hmm. but what's different about when, when we're, you know, a lot of the people that I work with, we're developing, uh, applications and, and, and software products that yep. may have a visualization element inside them. And so the unique thing here is we're not putting this into a PowerPoint and delivering right. a linear story that has a clear ending. We need these charts and graphs to live alone in a yes. dynamic environment. So do you have like a rules of thumb or guidances for perhaps how you approach, how might I change my approach to, to visualizing when a human narrator is not going to be there to accompany every user interaction, right? Every user session. Yeah, absolutely. So I tend to make a distinction between the exploratory process and the explanatory, right? Where I spend more time on the explanatory where you've already analyzed your data, you have something specific you want to communicate. Mm -hmm. uh, but before you do that, you have to explore the data. And the data exploration piece for me is what the sort of tools you're talking about, they should make that easier, right? Because the exploratory views of the data, right? Any sort of dashboard or, you know, dynamic sort of graph is um, something that the user should be able to look at and figure out really quickly, you know, where are things in line with my expectations? Where are they not? And basically use the exploration of the data to start to identify what may eventually be interesting stories. So the sort of tools that allow us to do that actually need to apply some very different um, lessons than we would use in the explanatory space, right? Because if I am there to talk through the data, I can do things like focus your attention with color and outline specific takeaways. Whereas if we're designing something that's meant to be used more for an exploration of the data, we actually can't do any of that, right? Because one, it's dynamic, so things are changing. So the area of focus or story might change from month to month. Right. But secondly, and more importantly, probably, is as soon as we try to draw attention to one aspect of the data or another, it actually makes any other potential takeaways harder to see. So I think really coming back to what are you trying to solve for? Or what are your users going to be trying to solve for? And how do you design something that's going to help facilitate that? 
So in the case where you're designing something dynamic, you know, there's no storyteller there. You want to really understand what are your end users? What sort of stories are they eventually going to want to be telling with this data? And how do you design things so that they can uncover those stories more quickly? Mm -hmm. This made me think, just as you were saying that, of I'm sure you've been in this situation before where you're perhaps you have a you have a chart or a graph and it has a title that is supposed to resonate the title, the text, and perhaps there's a lead-in sentence or something is kind of the story part. Mm -hmm. But the data that's being presented is in different units. So a good example of this is like how do we name like designers? How do we name icons? Do you do you call it envelope or is it the email icon? Mm -hmm. So functionally, it's about representing email, like that's a common pattern that we use, but the the design is an envelope. And I've seen the similar parallel of that analogy makes sense where, you know, your chart, it's like the units are dollars and cents, but the title might be like, you know, where is lost revenue or that's not a good example, but something, you yeah, know what I where mean? There's where there's a mismatch. You, yeah, yeah. You don't want to just say like change in dollars over time is like, yes, that's literally what you've plotted is change in dollars over time. Yep. That is not the, that is not fulfilling the need of the user. Can you talk about that friction a little bit and maybe how you approach that? Yeah, I mean, in an ideal scenario, right, pictures and words can work beautifully together. And you know, I think of a graph mm -hmm. as a, a picture of the data. And yep. so you want to think about how you can have those things reinforce each other, where if somebody reads the words, they're getting primed on what they're going to see in the graph. And if they read the graph, it illustrates for them some things that they read in the words. When those things work together seamlessly and it doesn't feel like there's mismatch, that's when it's magic because yep. it's good design and the person who's looking at it probably doesn't even realize it's good design because it's just easy for them yep. to consume. When that doesn't happen is the issue, right? Where you've got a title that um, you know talks about change when you're plotting the absolutes or you know whatever the mismatch may be. Because what happens is that means our audience now has to do work, right? You can imagine the furrowing of brows that's happening when somebody now reads this and looks at the graph. And they're trying to figure out how do you relate the words to the graph. And anytime we show data with a graph, you want to try to, or excuse me, words with a graph, you want to try to make it clear to your audience how those things relate, right? If you're describing a certain point in the graph, think about how you can connect the words to that point, right? Use similarity of color or draw a line between the two. Do something to connect them visually. Mm -hmm. And on the topic of words with graphs, there's actually been some interesting studies that show when you title the graph with the main takeaway, uh, people are more likely to remember that takeaway when they try to recall the graph later. So there's mm -hmm. this important benefit that we can get when we use words wisely with our data visualizations. And this yeah. is actually a common thing that's raised as well in our workshops is this idea that, well, you know, do I need to put words with my data? Shouldn't my graph speak for itself? Uh, which I think is unfortunately a really ill-advised sort oh, of yeah. um, direction that people go uh, because words are very important for making our data accessible and understandable. And so, yes, your graph needs a title. Yes, your axis needs a title, unless it's something that is so obvious. Um, and this is one of those cases we lose perspective on this because, you know, when it's the data you plotted, you know exactly what it is. So you don't need to label it for yourself. But if right. you're showing it to anybody else, you, you definitely do need to take some of those steps. Right, right. Well, and it's too, if we, if we abstract away some of these like words, we're really talking about ink on screens and pages hitting the eyeball and being processed, whether it's like a bunch of curly things that are actually letters inside words, or it's like bar charts on a graph, it's all ink. So, so think 
you know, think about the text as a visualization medium. It's just a different yep. one. But together, it's like use all the right flavors. Yes. Like not just, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. not allowed to use any salt, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm I'm a big fan of of using text and especially even especially on the software side like being able to generate uh, a text text uh, conclusions or opinions mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. that are software generated and then they're backed up by evidence. So mm-hmm. in this case, a lot of times the data is simply evidence to back up a software conclusion that's created. And a lot of times, what I see is there's no conclusion. There's just evidence plotted, and then the user has to extrapolate well what was the desired conclusion that this application is trying to tell me that's a lot of cognitive load and that's where a lot of times people think oh the visualization's wrong it's like well it might be just fine but you haven't told them why it matters yet like what pain have you filled or what problem gap and knowledge decision like it's it's the gap is too wide. Let's put some words here. Yep. <laughs> and and that's an interesting parallel because one of the things that I see happen so often is that on the data side, people stop with just showing the data. And mm-hmm. then the conversation becomes about the data of like, oh, did you look at this? Or can we get, right, go get that other data? Or what about this you know, crazy corner case? Whereas when you take it to that next step, right, in your software analogy, this is the you know, telling them the so what. Uh, right it shifts the conversation where mm-hmm. now the conversation is no longer about the data. It's more about the context and what does the data mean in light of that context? And, you know, does that mean we do things the same or we should do something differently? And to your point earlier, even if you don't get the action you need or the decisions different from what you thought it should be, it, when we're visualizing data well and communicating it with it effectively, we get the right sort of conversation going. Uh, and that's a conversation that often gets missed when we stop at simply showing the data and don't take it to that next step of, you know, not only what does the data tell us, but what should we do with that? You know, what discussion should take place or decisions should be made? Can you tell me, maybe you sort of covered this, but like, can you tell me maybe a time in your, either in your personal experience through observation of others, or maybe just yourself where the visualization was right, but the story was wrong. Like the, the, the behavior change, mm-hmm. the outcome you wanted didn't, happen and it wasn't a visualization problem and the reason i'm asking this question is i want people to see how and where this matters so you can get all the the technical part right <laughs> yeah and, and you you can right you can have the most beautiful data visualization in the world but right. if, if the story's wrong or if you're not relating it to your audience in a way that they can process so yeah that's going to fail mm-hmm. uh whereas you know you can have an ugly graph that kind of only 80 percent gets the job done or not even but if you've got the compelling story around it that scenario can still work um just thinking through a recent example that i had with a client where the visual was right in terms of, you know, the graph depicted what it was meant to. Um, they got the story wrong, though. And w- what happened was they were looking at something in aggregate. And in aggregate, everything was fine. There wasn't anything interesting. And then the graph showed that. And so um, they sort of stopped there. But what happened was when you dug several layers deeper, the story wasn't the same everywhere, right? There were some, and I'm generalizing here to preserve confidentiality. Hopefully this doesn't end up so general that it doesn't make sense. But there was something really interesting happening in this one subgroup uh, that had they not recognized that and gone through this next layer of questioning and analysis of the data, uh, they would have completely recommended the wrong thing. Thing, or would have sort of lost sight of this underlying uh, phenomenon that was happening that uh, actually 
drove them to change the recommendation that they made and help them get people on board in a way that wouldn't have happened if they'd stopped with the initial graph and story that were fine. They just weren't robust in the way that they needed to be to have the full understanding of what was going on. Got it. Got it. Um, maybe this, I don't know if this dovetails the next question or not, but um, the field of data science and advanced analytics is growing, right? We're, we're, mm -hmm. we're talking a lot about this and, and I'm curious, has this uh, created any types of changes in the type of uh, things we need to be aware of as people who visualize uh, information when we're talking about uh, looking into the future more, right? Because a lot yeah. of these are about predicting and prescribing actions based on past uh, information. Yep. Has that changed anything? Are you seeing a need to focus more on X, Y, and Z because people are coming in the door with, you know, with AI projects and this type of thing, or, or, or is it, are we still grappling with the same stuff, different story, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the, the thing that we encounter is that just so many more people are being, you know, there's so much more data out there and so many more people are being asked to do things with data, right? Mm -hmm. Where it may not be a core part of their job, but, but basically everybody needs to visualize and understand data at some point in their work. And so for me, the core principles for doing that effectively are not things that are changing fundamentally, right? When I think of the lessons we teach in our workshops, they're the same lessons and and they will continue to be the same lessons. And when I get people who come back and say, you know, when when is there, you know, the 201 version or the, you know, the expert version, for me, the question is not the right question because they're the same lessons. You can just get more nuanced in how you approach the different pieces where it's like, you know, understand your audience and context, choose a visual display that's going to get across the information you need it to, identify and eliminate clutter, focus attention where you want it when you're trying to explain something and tell a story, right? Don't just show your data, do more than that with it. And so for me, those fundamentals haven't changed. But I think what has changed is the growing need for people who can do those things, right? The lots of people can make graphs and there's another set of people who can communicate, uh, but the skills in a single person for being able to do that together effectively, I think have lagged uh, the growth that we've had in the amount of data that's around us. And we talked about this earlier, but people who recognize that and invest in both sides of those, right? Both the analytical prowess, but then also the ability to talk about their data in a way that makes sense and can be used to drive understanding and action. There's a big skill gap there I think generally yeah. um, that yeah uh, you know we should be able to do more with I think in terms of you know getting people it's exposure to best practices but then it's also practice is just a huge uh, important thing for getting better and pushing yourself to do things that are different from what you've done historically mm -hmm. um, and that's always one of my underlying lessons is you know think about for each specific scenario, right? What are the constraints of this scenario? You know, tool constraints, time constraints, uh, how are you presenting the information? What's at stake? Who's your audience? The pieces of the puzzle are different every single time. And yet so often we just communicate with data the way we've always done it because we've always done it that way. 
And that's not the recipe for success. But we want to think about, you know, what's unique about this scenario? How can I learn from the patterns I've seen in the past? But how do I combine things this time to be successful here? And I think the more thought we can give to that and, you know, using colleagues to uh, promote good conversation and play devil's advocate and try to help us be robust in how we're thinking about the data, being clear on the assumptions we're making about it, uh, that all of this helps sort of raise the, the boat when it comes to getting helping everyone be better got it and and so i do you see have you seen uh i you know when i talk to again a lot of kind of my solar system includes uh you know people coming from the data science side of things and advanced analytics and a lot of in this space they're like oh we're happy just to find a data scientist let alone a good one who can do that other stuff and i'm often like well you can get all that other stuff right, but if they can't communicate the results of their work, that yep. model may never get into production. And so yep. do you think it's, are we at that point yet where it's like, no, this is part of the job. And, and, I, and I realize there's, there's probably big places where it's big enough where you can afford to have certain types of uh, people really focused on their hyper-specialization, working just on math and models, and maybe yeah. they never get in front of a client. But I tend to think the people that are going to, especially the ones that are going to, you know, move up into management and director levels, you got to have this. It's not like this extra thing. Go take Cole's right. workshop because it'll like, oh, it's a nice extra thing. It's like, no, it's like. No, it's part of the core. Yes. Yeah, it's like, it's, yeah, yeah. it's part of well, the whole thing. For me, it's always <laughs> been really interesting, right? Because you think about the typical analytical process, you know, you start off, you have a question or a hypothesis, you go gather the data, you clean the data, you analyze the data. And oftentimes we stop there. Right. Uh, you know, we put it in a graph, maybe outline some findings, but that graph is the only part of that entire process that anybody else ever sees. Right. And whether it should or not, it says things about the level of detail that you paid in the rest of the process. And also that graph is the opportunity for all of your hard work to either succeed or fail. Right. And yet too often we put the least amount of time and attention or you know, we let the whole rest of the process take up all of our time. So we're out of time by the end of it and don't have um, sufficient uh, sort of um, uh, brain power left or time to be able to make sure that communication is effective. Right? The communication is not a nice to have add on. The communication is if you can't do that well, you may as well not have done the rest of the process uh, because it's not going to have the impact that you need it to. Um, you know, I'm a huge believer that there's an incredible amount of value to be realized from work that's already being done that just isn't being communicated as effectively as it could be. And that's what we're trying to help change. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. It's like sticking, you're in rehearsal, as I say. You can just stay in rehearsal all day, but yeah. like there's <laughs> the performance is where someone's going to hear what you're doing and, and, decide if it matters and, and all of that. And, and you have to jump in and, and participate, you know? Well, and recognize that it feels uncomfortable, right? If you haven't been putting a stake in the ground and saying, right. not only here's the data, but here audience is something you should do with it. That feels uncomfortable. So yeah. I'm always a fan of, you know, try things out in low risk spaces, helps build uh, confidence and credibility over time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, focus on small things that you can do and try stuff out and iterate from there. Yeah, no, it, that actually gets to my, my next question. Like I'm a big fan of, and we talk on this show a lot about working and working fast, and low fidelity, yes. generating stuff quickly, getting the feedback fast. This probably ties in like, are, do you, do you use markers and pencils in your work? And I, yeah. I do see in your book, you, 
you do, so I guess it's a leading question a little bit, but talk, talk, <laughs> to, talk to the audience here about working lo-fi fast. Yes, this is super critical. And I think it's especially critical when you're pressed for time. And it's the thing that most often gets skipped when mm -hmm. you're pressed for time. Uh, but yeah, picking up a pen and a blank piece of paper, or I love sticky notes, right? Because they're small, which forces me to be concise in my ideas. They lend themselves to being easily rearranged. So if I'm planning something out, they can be a mix of words and pictures, and I can be moving them around. And the earlier on you can get feedback from others uh, in this sort of low-tech fashion, right? I'm a big fan of storyboarding, where uh, if I'm designing, uh, whether it's a dashboard or a presentation of putting the ideas out there, and I, I typically storyboard in three distinct phases, where I start by brainstorming, then I edit, and then I get feedback. And so the brainstorming process is just, you know, get the ideas out of my head, out into the physical world where I can consider them at a later point, where I don't have to think about, you know, what order do they end up going in or are they going to mm -hmm. end up in the final thing? I can just get the ideas out of my head. And that usually takes five minutes or so. Then you start editing, which is step back and figure out, you know, what structure can I put around this that might help me make sense of it to somebody else? Or, uh, you know, how might I bucket things together? What can I get rid of? And that's one of the really important things we get when we do this low tech that I think we skip when we go to our tools. So when we build something in our tools, it feels like whatever we create needs to answer every possible question that might, might come up. Whereas when we're working low tech, we can consider something and decide, you know what, it might be relevant or interesting, but I actually don't need to have it as part of my communication or whatever it is you're working on. And so one big benefit of planning fast and in a low tech fashion upfront is you a lot of times end up with a shorter um, thing at the end of it, which means you have more time to then make the um, visuals and the communication of something that's shorter you know, to make that really quality work. The other thing we get when we work low tech is you don't get the same sort of attachment. Right? If I've just spent a bunch of time making this beautiful thing in my tool, I'm going to be attached to that. Mm -hmm. And if somebody tells me like, no, that's not right, I might fight for it or not want to change because of the time it's already taken for me to get it where it is. Yep. And that's what you can let go of entirely when you're working lo-fi and you know, sketch five different views of your graph. And then you know, I can figure out that this crazy graph that I really thought would be fantastic that I should actually just let go of it. It doesn't work for this data. Whereas if I'd done that same crazy graph in my tool, I'd be much less inclined to let it go so easily. Um, and then getting feedback at that point, because if you can get feedback from a client or a stakeholder or a manager where you can say, hey, this is rough, but here's what I'm thinking, and either get the feedback of, yeah, that looks great, execute, or no, let's actually go in this other direction. You've not invested a ton of time to order, in order to get that feedback. So it just helps the rest of the process be so much more streamlined. I 100% agree with you. I'd also add one other thing about the the sunk cost bias, right? When you mm -hmm. fall in love with your, you know, the the your your baby that you've created, is yeah. that that low fidelity format, especially if you're working with a stakeholder or perhaps someone who's going to be the recipient, is it enables them to give you honest feedback because the more polished that sucker looks, mm -hmm. the yeah, less they're going to want to give you any. Wow, he spent a lot of time on that. Well. You know, they're just not going to want to give you it. But if there's a whiteboard and a marker and an eraser present, it's like, no, it's not this. It's this. No, well, just erase it and show me. I don't care. Take a picture of it and then move yep. on. You can. It really fosters an environment of like together we're working on it to get to the right thing. And it doesn't, you know, just because I started the first version doesn't mean it's right. 
Yeah. Well, it invites them to be part of the process, right? Which means they're going to be more bought into the solution as a result, which is actually a really smart influencing technique. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's most of the, you know, we talk about designing applications and products. It's, there's a lot of collaboration there, right? It's, it's more, it's more together than it is self. Mm -hmm. Um, the more you're, you're throwing over the wall, the, the risk just tends to be bigger because you don't, you're not connecting early. And this also gets into the whole trust thing with models and especially when you get into advanced analytics and prescriptive models and all of this kind of stuff too. It's, it's getting those people involved early such that it may even be the case sometimes where the visualization means even less because they've seen what your process has been the whole time yep. that you don't need to like sell them so hard on the visualization. It's not like, Oh my God, are they going to believe it or not? It's like down to the wire. It's like, they already know what's coming. Like maybe there's a formal presentation, but like yeah. they kind of know what's coming and that's a good thing. They, they were Absolutely. part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you could have that every single time, you'd want that every single time. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, Moving kind of back up a few higher elevations here, are are you finding that I, I feel like, you know, every business is talking about, oh, we need, you know, data literacy and we need people to work with data and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Are you feeling that management and executives are aware of this as a skill gap where you can't just get people that know R in and out or some statistics or whatever it may, you know, some software technical skills that this is critical to that. And so training, training in this needs to be looked at as not extra. Is it still this kind of like, I got to sell my boss on taking your course? Or is it more like, they're telling me I have to take it because they know it's so important. Like, where are we now? with? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think I think there's growing recognition that this is a specialized skill set, right? We don't just come out of school knowing how to communicate with numbers. Um, And I think it's mixed still in terms of uh, companies willingness to invest time and resources in it. Uh, I mean, we we one of the interesting things from our workshops is we work with clients across all sorts of different industries and locations and job functions. And so it's really interesting for me and for the team to see how, even though, you know, the metrics are totally different that we're looking at, or the industries are totally different, everybody's struggling with basically the same stuff. And there's still a ton of low hanging fruit in most, most organizations when it comes to simple things that people can do that will help uh, make their work more effective, right? Basic things like using color effectively or choosing a graph that's going to be intuitive for your audience. And so there's a huge appetite for for learning these skills. Um, And I think we're certainly... Yeah, as, as more data is out there, I just it, this keeps growing, right? Because yeah. I think one of the things we haven't solved yet that um, is getting better. But you think of data visualization has only been a field for like not very long in the grand scheme of things, and it's actually even more recently that courses around communicating with data uh, have started finding their ways into universities, right? But most people come out of you know if I think back to me coming out of MBA school, like I should have learned this stuff there, and I didn't learn any of this stuff there. Yeah. Um, that the I think. We're starting to make progress in terms of 
having there at least be some programs and some courses here and there. But I'm I'm a strong advocate that this these are things that you know one everybody should know and everybody can make use of. But then also that we should be trying to teach sooner. Um, you know, I have three little kids, and for me, watching them learn the faculty of language has been so interesting. Right, it's through repetition and um, you know being sort of immersed in something. And you think of you know visual language seems like something that we could teach as kids are learning verbal language. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think anybody's cracked that quite yet. But this way of you know thinking logically and asking the right questions and designing things visually um, because it's, it's drawing and it's thinking in story and it's doing a lot of these things that we had seeds of and started learning as children, but then didn't get combined in the way that we want to be able to use them uh, today when it comes to um, adding value in the workplace. Yeah. Well, what, I don't know. I don't know what your childhood was like, but I, I have this distinct memory of like, like you need to be looking at books without pictures in them. Like yeah, you yeah. had to move to text only and, and the image will be in your mind. And I totally get that from a reading comprehension standpoint, but it makes the assumption that that together somehow the text is less. And it's like, I, I just I mm. kind of remember that even though my formal training is not in design, but I'm just like, I'm not supposed to you know, there's something wrong there. And it just stuck with me. And I wonder if that's been other people's, I wonder if that's partly why this is like this, is that when we learn to read, we're, we're kind of pushed away from illustrations and visuals and this kind of thing. And, or maybe that was just my school. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my kids are young. So they, you know, one of the things they've been learning as they learn to read is this picture power because they're fully in picture books right now. And one of their uh-huh. powers is they're meant to study the picture. And then when they read, if they come up with challenges or they're you know trying to figure out what a word is, they look to the picture for clues that might help them reading the words. Right. So when we're learning, the pictures are very important. Uh, but yeah, it is interesting then this shift that happens when we move away from picture books books and into just text and the, you know, the pictures that are then in your mind as a result of that. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how we bring that back to the parallel of data visualization. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could talk about practicing. and some connection. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, let's talk about practicing for a second. So yeah. we're, we're kind of, we're getting up on our time here, but practicing is definitely the theme of a new thing you have. <laughs> it is. And it's been it's been a theme for me for a long time. But yeah, sure. the idea is the way that you get good at this stuff, like the way you get good at anything is to practice and, you know, to practice and repeat and build good habits in that way. Sure. And so one of the things that I was recognizing, you know, out of the first book or out of our workshops is there still felt like a disconnect between, you know, people getting the lessons and feeling comfortable applying them in their day-to-day work life. And so my new book, Let's Practice, is really trying to bridge any gap there where the lessons are the same, uh, but it's really focused on getting the re- involved and in a few different ways. So each chapter is organized into three sets of exercises. There's practice with Cole, where you're posed a scenario or an exercise that you're meant to work through on your own, but then I also work through my solution. So it's a way of interjecting a ton more examples and corner cases, right, where things get stickier. Uh, Everything was pretty straightforward in the original book. Uh, And just giving insight into the thought process when it comes to designing uh, if 
effective data communications. Then the second exercise section within each chapter is practice on your own. And this is similar sort of canned exercises, but without any prescribed solutions. So these are meant to be used for uh, university instructors who are teaching the material or you know, managers who are wanting to upskill their team or individuals who are just wanting more practice in a safe environment. And then the final exercise section within each chapter is practice at work. So, okay, you've done this in theory, you've done it with some canned examples. Now let's take a project that you're facing in the workplace and break it into component pieces and give you really concrete exercises and things that you can do that will help make sure you're asking the right questions, getting the right sort of feedback at the right points and so forth. And so I'm super excited to have it out there. It was published just last month and the reception so far has been extremely positive, which has been fun to see. So I certainly recommend uh, folks who are interested in honing the sort of skills that we've been talking about here to check that out. And actually dovetailing on that, we're actually working on and have been working on a really exciting resource called the Storytelling with Data Community. Because um, again, this there's a need, I think, for people to have a safe uh, outside of work environments to practice and get and receive feedback and talk with other people about the challenges they're facing or the successes that they've had when it comes to this stuff and discover, right? Um, find great work that can be used to inspire the way that we look at things. And the community has been designed to try to facilitate all of those things. So we're in beta testing right now. This is an online resource uh, that people can join and take part in uh, to get feedback and input both from Storytelling with Data team as well as others in the community. Uh, but we'll be opening that up uh, more broadly uh, in early 2020. So definitely encourage folks who cool. find that to sound interesting to take a look at our website for more details there. Awesome. And I can I assume Storytelling with Data, all spelled out, .com is the place to go? That's the fair assumption. All right, nice. And where else can people, are you, do you do any social media? Or is, if someone wanted to follow your work, what's the yeah. best Yeah, uh, I'm at Story with Data. Okay. And you can follow on Twitter, Instagram, and yeah, all the info is on our site at storytellingwithdata.com. Awesome. Well, Cole, this was super, this is a great conversation. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing sharing some visuals with us. Yeah, it's been fun to <laughs> chat with you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.